Hebrews chapter 9, the details, and we'll look at them in just a moment, of actually the altar of incense are found in Exodus um, chapter 30, among other places. But there's something interesting of which somewhat recently, after a couple of times of going through the tabernacle, um, I picked up on this comment by Brother H.P. Mansfield in the Expositor. <clears throat> and he says, uh, according to what we just read, that the altar of incense acted as a link between the holy and most holy places. And notice what he picks up on. And I thought this was wonderful. It is most significant that in describing these two sections of the tabernacle, Paul makes no mention of the altar of incense. Instead, here in, in what our brother read for us uh, this evening is that he refers to the golden censer as being in the most holy. And nothing about the altar of incense in the holy place where the lampstand and, of course, table of showbread were. Symbolism taught that through prayer, we can enter the most holy itself by the blood of Jesus Christ, our sin offering. And, of course, a lot of this, as you know, in um, Hebrews 9 refers to the Day of Atonement. If you, while you're there, if you look just a little further down in uh, Hebrews chapter 9, putting it at verse 8, it says, The Holy Spirit signifying the way into the holiest of all was not yet manifest while the first tabernacle was yet standing. And I know we did this in our introductory classes, but it says it was a figure for the time present, or as verse 1 says, the worldly sanctuary. It was a temporal or a sanctuary for that particular epoch of time in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. Uh, that word figure, just so you know, and it, we're not going to reiterate what we did in all at length in the introductory classes, but just you may want to scribble it down as a note. That word figure is parable. It is the same word used throughout the scriptures to talk about the parables of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why in the law of Moses, and no doubt you've picked up on this if you've uh, read the law of Moses by Brother Roberts, he refers to it as the mosaic parable perpetually because of the figures that are, apply there. And it in fact is a parable. And then he goes on to say that really the, the fundamental principles of reconciliation to God are really much more easily seen in the literal things that happened in the law. And when you apply, of course, the greater things uh, to Christ, it's, it's obviously it's a schoolmaster uh, in that sense. So this is what he's talking about. And this is just a little diagram is that that altar of incense. And I don't know if you can see my cursor here, but he's actually talking about this, this censer that was taken by the high priest on the day of atonement into the most holy place. And that's what Brother Mansfield is talking about um, in that particular quotation of Hebrews chapter 9. So it's, uh, it, it's very interesting. Just details like that you pick up all the time when it is pertaining to the tabernacle. And brothers and sisters, I've said this before. <clears throat> while it's the most detailed of all subjects, the tabernacle, uh, it is deliberately not difficult to find the meanings of them. And we'll find that with the altar of incense. It represents prayer, as our brother Luke said in his opening prayer. Um, and it's not difficult to find. And what you do is you go back to the aspects of the law, and now you can find great details pertaining to the issues of prayer and its importance in the law, because it is a parable. It was for the time then present to be a figure of what we would see the process of reconciliation developing with the substance of the Lord Jesus Christ.
Now, <clears throat> that's important when we come to the law of Moses. Again, we've touched on this. So, <clears throat> excuse me, we have a lot of allergies, uh, allergens and pollens in the air. It's a time of year in Texas. Um, when the time came that you should be teachers, you have need that one teach you again what be the first principles of the oracles of God and are become such as have need of milk. Remember, he's talking to the Hebrews, the Jews, and not of strong meat. For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness. Now, not that we misapply that in the way that we use the terms first principles, the fundamental things. When we talk about instructing someone in the first principles of what we know to be the truth, but really technically speaking, brothers and sisters, the oracles, and that word, you'll see it literally as it appears in Acts chapter 7 and Romans 3, is directly related to the law. And if you've got a set of notes on uh, Brother John Martin's book on Hebrews, he brings that out. And the word of righteousness is really speaking of Christ. He's the greater meat that you had to go beyond the law to see. So in just fundamental things, brothers and sisters, sometimes when we deal with things in the New Testament, and we're trying to bypass the law, it becomes an impossibility. Because the milk and the fundamental things are found in the oracles, the law. And they're not hard to track down in the scriptures. But you go through them systematically and you understand why Christ and the apostles, once we get to the new covenant, why so many things are fulfilled in the law and why the prophets referred to them. Because the oracles of the law are the milk. It's basic arithmetic. And sometimes when we get into the New Testament, it's almost like we're trying to get into engineering without knowing the details of one plus one equals two. That's why the law is always, I would suggest, a very good place for people to start when it uh, comes to studying the word of God, because you'll get some fundamental things in there that, that are vital for understanding elsewhere in the scriptures. So here we have it in this uh, altar of incense that he was to put the golden altar in the tent of the congregation before the veil. He burnt incense thereon as Yahweh commanded. Now, you'll know that the apocalypse, not just one, but two places. Now, this is different than the brazen altar. That was very right when you entered the, the general tent of the congregation. This is a much smaller golden altar of incense. It's not made of brass. And that golden censer, Romans 8 tells us, I'm sorry, Revelation 8, the apocalypse, says that it was offered with much incense to offer it with the prayers of the saints upon the golden altar and the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints. So here again, we know without question to the law and to the testimony that the incense represents prayer. Not at all difficult to understand what that is representing. We find it elsewhere in the Apocalypse, chapter 5, that the four beasts and 20 and four elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps, which I believe correctly has been assessed as representing immortality. It's a string instrument instead of a wind instrument. So it's a harp and their golden vials full of the margin has incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And then it goes on to talk about that we, of course, have been redeemed to God by the blood of Christ, out of every kindred, tongue, people, and nations, the four corners of the earth, of course. And he's made us unto our God 
a kingdom of priests, as we know rightly that should be, and we shall reign upon the earth. The golden altar had a crown. There's the future of everything that we're looking for. And here is quoted by Brother Luke in his prayer very appropriately, and we'll get into that. Um, if you listened intently to our, our brother's opening prayer, <clears throat> we'll get into some other elements of, uh, of what he said there because it's an enlightened prayer. That's very important. When we cry unto Yahweh, make haste, give ear unto my voice. When I cry unto thee, let my prayer be sent forth as incense and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. And, of course, we know in 1 Timothy 2, the lifting up of hands is like unto prayer. When the incense rose into the heavens, we're upon earth. But these things after the worldly tabernacle or the temple tabernacle that are a figure of greater things to come represented something. And the incense rose and it rose up to heaven. And there's a reason for that, brothers and sisters, because it was giving us a figure of what prayer would do is it ascend to the heavenly father. So we go back to Exodus 30 and it's like verses one through 10. Well, you get the details here. And we mention this regarding our brother's prayer. And a lot of prayers are like this. It was filled, filled with very appropriately, wonderful prayer, filled with a succession of Bible quotations. Note what it says. We dealt with this last time, what the lamps and the lampstands represent. The word is a lamp under my feet. When the sweet incense was born, was burned every morning, it took place when the lamps were dressed. And when Aaron lighted the lamps at the evening, he burned the incense also there for perpetual incense before their generations. So that incense is drawn deliberately together with prayer and, of course, the lighting of the lamps, the word of God. It has to be an enlightened utterance. And we know from the Psalms and many other places in Scripture, Hannah's prayer, we mentioned it before, was quoted by Mary as a prophecy. They're prophetic prayers. So they're filled with doctrine. Our day should begin and end in the morning and the evening with prayer to the Heavenly Father, coupled with the Word of God. Get some sort of reading of the Scriptures in in the morning, also in the evening. Some brethren split their daily readings in that to accomplish that. While I was speaking in prayer, says Daniel, even the man Gabriel touched me about the time of the evening oblation. And that's the evening sacrifice. Luke chapter 1, here again, you get that offering. According to the custom of the priest office, his light was to burn incense when he went into the temple of Yahweh. And the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense. Now, here's the fourth reference that is clearly telling us that prayer represents incense. There appeared unto him an angel of the Lord. Where is he standing? He's standing on the right side of the altar of incense. So it's not only that God hears prayer. It's what that prayer represents, and it's directly tied here to this altar of incense. So, as we've said before, like all things of the tabernacle, there are great details in it, but they're not difficult to find. I think that's deliberate, brothers and sisters, as I've said before. You remember when the law was set up? <coughs> Excuse me. It was etched into stone, and it was plastered. And that's Deuteronomy 27, I believe, verses 1 through 8. And it says you shall write them very plainly upon stones. 
And it really is to hold every man accountable so that people just can't quickly say, well, oh, I can't understand. It's too complex for me. I honestly don't believe it's difficult for a teenager to understand the classes that we've gone through. There may be elements that are more difficult to understand that those of us of more mature understanding and age and the truth grasp, but they're deliberately not difficult. Etch them into stone so they're unchangeable and make them very plain for all of Israel to see. Every man is obligated. All the world is guilty before God. They're not difficult to comprehend. Now, Peter and John went up together in the temple at the hour of prayer in the ninth hour. That's when the incense was offered. Cornelius said four days ago, I was fasting until this time. And at the ninth hour, I prayed in my house. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, thy prayer is heard. Thine alms are had in remembrance in the sight of God. Remind me in the end, if we want to pick up some conversation, I have a question about this instance with Cornelius and Peter that somebody may know the answer to because I don't uh, this evening incense was at the ninth hour when the Lord himself cried and the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to bottom and that veil of course we're told in the scriptures was his flesh and it was opening up the way into the most holy and he is the mediator of that particular process that's why in that ninth hour that very time of the evening sacrifice, when offerings are made, the offering of incense, the veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom. It's the heavens under the earth. So we know, again, here the symbolism, and there's much greater detail to that we don't have time to address right now. So that we read this in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiness of, by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now remember this on the day of atonement, that blood was brought in when the censer of incense was brought in too. We'll mention this just a little bit coming up by a new and living way, which he has consecrated for us through the veil that is to say his flesh. And that happened when he expired upon the cross. And we have a high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart full of assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And we find it again in Hebrews 9. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of the things in the heavens were purified now by these things. And what he's talking about, of course, is these better sacrifices. Christ has not entered into holy places that were made by hands. We already read the context, the opening context here of Hebrews 9. The worldly sanctuary or the temporal sanctuary, that which was standing of that set time, but it was a figure of a greater one. He's actually in that figure of the true is entered into heaven itself now to be a mediator on our behalf. So that veil separated the holy place from the most holy, where only the ark was, where only the high priest entered one time a year on the day of atonement. Of course, you know, Hebrews 9 is talking a lot about that particular principle. So that golden altar, it's very significant, means to slaughter. It's actually a little bit more aggressive word than some other instances in the Bible. It was bloodless, it's true. But it had the element of personal putting to death the flesh. And we'll get to that in just a moment in more detail. Because it's stated as this, Hebrews 13, verse 15, 
By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to him continually. And it's called the first fruits of our lips and thanksgiving in Hebrews. It's the first fruits of our lips. That's why even before we partake of uh, a meal, God gets the first fruits, just like the first fruits offerings went to him in the law. Before we partake of it, we acknowledge it came from him first. We're only partaking of a store that belongs unto him. And those are the sorts of things that our children see growing up in a house with enlightened parents. They see us in humility going before God. Although we've gone out and worked all day, we've generated an income by his mercy. When we come before and we offer thanks, even if it's in partaking of food, we give him the first fruits of our lips. And it's good for our children to see that Everything yields to Almighty God. Even my parents, mom and dad do. Even they yield to Almighty God. And you know, the world goes through that principle all the time where they're wrestling with their past that, oh, I didn't have per perfect parents and it's created all kinds of difficulties for me in my life. Christadelphian children are not brought up thinking their parents are perfect. They're not that naive. They realize that we're full of sin and we're trying to mature from babes to milk to the meat to go on to perfection of old age. Christadelphian children are never raised with that misconception that we are perfect parents. And it's called the sacrifice and the sacrifices of thanksgiving in Psalm 107. It's called the sacrifice of thanksgiving in Psalm 116. So earnest prayer requires the flesh to be humbled. Our children see that, brothers and sisters. It's an offering of sincere appreciation, although they look to us as Authority, they know we're bowing our heads to a greater authority. But here's the point of this sacrifice of the praise of our lips. The coals from that altar of incense were taken from the altar of burnt offering. And it says that in Leviticus 16 on the Day of Atonement. That's the important thing about it. He shall take the censer full of burning coals from off the fire of the altar before Yahweh. That's where he got the coals of fire. So that's why there's this element of sacrifice. And Brother Robert says in the law of Moses, Nadab and Abihu, you know this from Leviticus chapter 10, they offered strange fire. Aaron's two sons diverged so far from these directions, getting the burning coals of fire somewhere else than from the altar of burnt offering. And they were struck down dead on the spot. And what it means to you and I, brothers and sisters, is that we cannot just utter words to Almighty God. They have to be consistent with action. Although the incense is offered and it was bloodless, the coals did come from a place where animals were sacrificed. It's not a literal doing of something when we go into prayer, but it is a result and a confection and an utterance of what our actions are and what they intend to be. Blot out my transgressions. I repent from everything that I've done. Please forgive me. Even if we haven't repented yet, it's an intention that action will follow. So that's the principle involved. And again, you can look at these in your spare time for time's sake. Yahweh, attend unto my cry, give ear unto my prayer, that goeth not of feigned lips. It cannot go out of feigned lips. We say it, and it's, as you know, James says, it's way easier to utter things from the tongue than to actually live those things. 
You shall cry out in the day because your king, which you've chosen, Yahweh told you you'd pervert the nation, but you did it anyway, and Yahweh will not hear you in that day when things go terrible. He that turneth away is here from hearing the law. Even his prayer will be an abomination. Why? Because the lamps were lit at the time that the incense was offered. If we're offering prayer to Yahweh, and we're not students of the Bible, we're the ones doing all the talking. Yahweh is intending to instruct, correct, and reprove us by his word. And we don't want any part of that. We just want to do all the talking. That's not the way a discourse goes between Yahweh and the servants. And we have that many times between the prophets and Yahweh, Christ and Yahweh. We have that many times with Moses himself speaking to Yahweh, of course, through a mediator. The priest alone handled the incense. You'll find that on the Day of Atonement. He takes all the incense and handles it. Christ is the mediator. We'll talk about that out of Romans in just a moment, the very important quote. Wherefore, he's able to save them to the uttermost that come to God by him, seeing as he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such a high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, made higher than the heavens. That's how he entered into the most holy brothers and sisters. Something we'll talk about in the classes to come, God willing. And when we talk about the Lord Jesus Christ as our mediator, as a high priest, and one representing us because he shared our nature as a high priest, that's always the context. Look at it in Hebrews 4. We don't have a high priest that can't be touched with the feeling of our nature. But we have one in all points, like as we are, tempted yet without sin, so that we can find help in time of need. It's the same thing in Hebrews 5. Every high priest is taken among men and ordained for men in the things of God, so that he can have compassion on the ignorant and those that are out of the way, for that he himself is compassed about with infirmity. That's a physical thing. You know that. Hebrews 2. Wherefore in all things it behooved him, what? To be made like unto his brethren. He was a partaker of flesh and blood. That he would be a merciful and faithful high priest in all things, pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself suffered, being pressed to the test or trial, He's able to succor them that are tempted. So in the cases that it refers to that, we are drawn to attention of the nature of the Lord Jesus Christ as a merciful mediator, sharing this nature that we had. He's called in 1 Timothy 2 and 5, the man Christ Jesus. And we'll get details of that when we get into the day of atonement, literally as they're applied in Leviticus 16, as they are the figure prominently spoken of in Hebrews Chapter 9, Exodus 26, thou shalt make a veil of blue and of purple and scarlet, fine twine linen with a cherubim in it. So this is a veil representing the flesh, but it's ornate in that it's separated the holy place from the most holy. But you have these cherubim embroidered onto it. And we know that in the holy place is the ark with the mercy seat and the cherubim overspreading it. And God willing, next class, we'll get into the subject matter of the cherubim in the most holy place. And, of course, these four pillars that we've talked about of shittim wood overlaid with gold 
So these four pillars are the main prophets and, of course, the, uh, uh, the four gospel accounts, as we quoted previously in the classes. And thou shalt make an altar to burn incense thereon of shittim wood, thou shalt make it, a cubit and a length thereof, and a cubit and a breadth thereof, four square shall it be, two cubits shall be the height thereof, and horns of the same. Just like the altar of burnt offering, four square, it had horns, but this one is much smaller. That one was five cubits by five cubits, not this one. It's a cubit the length thereof, and a cubit the breadth thereof. This one's one. It tells us something, brothers and sisters. The hypocrites love to pray standing in the synagogues in the corners of the streets to be seen of men because they want a reward. They want to be praised in the temple. But you, when you pray, enter into a closet. You shut the door. You pray to the Father in secret so that the things that are done in secret, he may reward thee openly. When you pray, do not pray in vain repetitions as the heathen do, which literally the churches do in the Lord's Prayer. They recite it. For they think that they shall be heard of their much speaking. And there again is a very obvious difficulty. A golden altar is smaller. It means our words are offered, but our person is more important. Words are important, but actions are what must be seen. The faith has to be seen in work, says James. We can't just love in words, says First John, but in deed and in truth. So it's not just saying that we'll do the will of God. It's actually doing the will of the Father in heaven. That's why the personal sacrifice is critical, brothers and sisters. It's not just drawing nigh unto God with the mouth and honoring with the lips. The heart is far from him. He's living the truth. It's putting to flesh, putting the death, putting to death the flesh. Well, that was a long way to get there. To putting the flesh to death on the altar of burnt offering. Um, in the altar that is much, much bigger. And of course, happen in daily exercise in their lives. It's made of gold. It symbolized the fervent prayer of faith. And it says that in James. The fervent prayer of a righteous man. And there's that goal. Like Elijah. Where he prayed very interestingly, brothers and sisters. For a period of a time's time and a dividing of a time. For 42 months. For three years and six months. It's a very significant time period during the period, of course, of Jezebel. And you can mark that numeric time yourself because it has prophetic significance. So we read this in Exodus 30. Thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, the top thereof, and your King James most likely, if it's a Cambridge or if it's an Oxford like mine, will have in the margin roof. And the sides thereof, and your margin will have, likely like mine does, the walls roundabout, and then a crown of gold roundabout it. It's a house of prayer. It's got a roof and walls. And that's why it's referred to such in the scriptures as this house of prayer with the horns on the four corners, accessible to all people, every kindred, tongue, people, and nation. Remember that definition of prayer as we went to in the Apocalypse 5, verses 8 and 9. The prayer of the saints. And he's made us unto our God, kingdom of priests, out of kindreds, tongues, peoples, and nations. Here is this grand house of prayer. And here, of course, is this crown of gold roundabout. 
wherein we greatly rejoice. We don't rejoice in trial, brothers and sisters, literally speaking. Knowing that it's for a season is how we rejoice. Knowing that it's needful so that when we're in manifold temptations, great difficulties, and we know it's the trial of our faith, being much more precious than gold that perisheth, though it's tried, it will be found to praise and honor and glory. So First Peter, uh, you could read the fundamentals that we know, of course, uh, uh, very well, and that is that trying of the faith brings forth and produces gold. And of course, it had the crown of gold roundabout. And it's again in First Peter 5 and 4, the great shepherd shall appear. We receive this crown of glory and this crown of life spoken of in the apocalypse. So we've talked about the production of gold and how it's brought forth in the lampstand um, so that we don't be overcome and fret um, with the principle of trial. Aaron shall burn thereon the sweet incense every morning wherein he dreadeth the lamps, a quotation we brought to bear just a moment ago, where Brother H.P. Mansfield in Making Prayer Powerful says this, he speaks to us when we study his word, we speak to him when we respond in prayer. Prayer is always linked with the word. The lamps were tendered in the holy place at the time when the incense was burned upon the golden altar, when prayer and the word are a daily delight. We experience in measure what Moses experienced in the tabernacle. When Moses was gone in the congregation to speak with God. Then he heard the voice of one speaking to him from off the mercy seat. And that's the principle, brothers and sisters, is communication. Yahweh is speaking to us through his word daily if we are there to hear it. Paul wrote, and this is uh, the reference um, in Romans 8. And I think this is a very good explanation because this has been something that's been the subject uh, of discussion for a lot of brethren, rightly so. It's a difficult piece of scripture. Does Christ literally intercede? Does he intercede as the mediator by principle? And the fact that we had a mediator sharing our nature of the sacrifice, by what means does he do this? Here's from uh, Brother H.P. Mansfield. The spirit helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray what we ought, but the spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And here's the importance of lighting the lamps and the incense burning at the same time. This is what Uncle Purse Mansfield suggested. The spirit refers to a mind generated by the truth, the word. Such will guide us in prayer, reveal to us our needs. Remember, I mentioned early on in the session about Brother Luke's opening prayer. It's critical. It's a compound of continual scriptural quotes, very appropriately which we find sometimes, it says, impossible to express in words, but we can express it in spiritual words, scriptural words. When Paul wrote, the spirit helpeth our infirmities, he referred to the weakness of the flesh to approach God aright. The word infirmities signifies want of strength or weakness. The spirit truth will help our natural weakness and enable us to acceptably pray unto the Father. Moreover, in the Greek, the definite article is attached to what, making it the what. It will not teach us, we know not the what we should pray for as we ought. Unless the mind is prepared by the word, we do not know the particular thing or failing 
for which we should be praying as we ought, praying according to the will of the Heavenly Father. Christ says that. So do the apostles. The word, however, enlivens the mind in spiritual matters and revealing to us our true state before God. And Yahweh said unto Moses, take unto these sweet spices. Each of these shall be lightweight. We won't get into the details of this, making prayer powerful. He does that in that book uh, by Brother Mansfield. Each of like weight. All he says, tempered together, as the margin has, salted together. And you will beat some of it very small. Very small. And that was to be taken by Aaron and burned in the censer. So you're supposed to beat some of it very small. It's again, just like the principle of extracting what? The olive oil and the lampstand beaten out of one piece of gold. In all of this, there's humility. Note what we find in Luke 22. We know that prayer represents incense. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Well, isn't it true, brothers and sisters, when we're in great straits and great difficulty, for me, most often self-inflicted, you are definitely praying more earnestly. You have to get out the door and get doing something and you're about ready to head out on vacation with your family and you, you need to pray for the meal before you go. It, it moves off really quick and sometimes not full of substance. You measure yourself by trial. And in agony, you pray more earnestly. That's why it's made of gold. And why Peter and all those quotes are brought into how gold is produced. It's produced through trial. So they're very deliberate effects of, of, of uh, trial. Things of the truth, divine principles must be learned. Lord, teach us to pray. And we know what this prayer is. It's of lightweight tempered together. Pray for the kingdom to come. That's first, Yahweh. Not his will to be done, not ours. Foremost, the truth is about the Almighty. Then daily provision. Give us our daily bread. Then we are unquestionably in need of forgiveness of sins. And then extending that mercy to others. Forgive us our sins as we're forgiving others. And then help us that we refrain from temptation, some tempta from temptation and evil, that we go not that way because there's, of course, snares everywhere for us in life, brothers and sisters, all tempered together. The right incense had to be beaten small, not offered in lumps, says Brother Roberts in the Law of Moses. Some people neglect God in daily habit and seem to think they can make up for lost time by being specially religious at certain times. Same thing with the study of the word. Remember, these two things were done daily. Thinking they can make up for lost time, especially religious at certain times. This must be odious to God as intermittent friendship would be unsatisfactory to man. Calling him a friend, but really never even having much to do with him. The will of God is that we pray always and everything give thanks. Be exercised in his fear all the day long. And then, of course, he goes on to say more there in the law of Moses. Jesus when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the spirit in Matthew 27, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to bottom. His sacrifice opening that way through the veil, that is to say his flesh, for entrance into the most holy. And I do know the reference in Ephesians 2, 
Evidently, there was a literal partition in the temple separating the Gentile proselytes from the Jews. But one thing Christ did, those that are far off, the Gentiles, and those that are nigh, the Jews, which, of course, is the context of Ephesians 2, by the blood of Jesus Christ, that veil is broken down, that middle wall of partition, and they're both made, of course, of the commonwealth of Israel, as you well know, the context there. The New Testament teaches the censer was taken into the most holy on the day of atonement. Christ now into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. And look what happens here, brothers and sisters. Look what happens. This happened on the day of atonement. It's the only time that happened. And this, of course, is the context of, of uh, Hebrews chapter 9. We know that. It's not difficult to understand. But notice what it says particularly when that censer full of burned coals, and remember Hebrews 9, the first verses of that were in this context. He didn't refer to the altar of incense. He referred to this censer full of burning coals as being in the most holy. So that's important. The coals of fire from before the altar of Yahweh, the hands full of sweet incense beaten small in humility, and he brings it in the veil. And look what happens. He puts the incense upon the fire before Yahweh, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat. Well, what is incense other than prayer? It's been very easy to define, brothers and sisters. It's brought by the high priest, Christ, into heaven itself to fill the most holy with a cloud of incense to cover the mercy seat. That's what our prayer should be foremost for. And we have that action of a mediator with Daniel, and of course in Nehemiah, in those two chapters referred to, where the appeal is the forgiveness of sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As I've said before, there is not a sin of a Christadelphian, a brother in Christ, that is not common to the world, that is not recorded of saints in the scripture. But we can be cleansed from all unrighteousness, having confessing, forsaking it. The world, well, brothers and sisters, it's probably the same in your country. The United States is now. Nothing is sin. Every action and every group is to be accepted without question in society. If we say that we have not sinned, we now make God the liar, not ourselves. And here's the point. His word is not in us. There's the incense as the lamps working in combination again, brothers and sisters. Personal confession of sin exalts Yahweh's law. I acknowledge my sin unto thee, mine iniquity have I not hid. I will confess my transgressions unto Yahweh, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. See law. You remember what Christ said of the Pharisees. They love to pray openly in the market, but you pray in a closet in secret someplace. And you know, the Christian world does that. They, they do what they call testimonies. I was a drug user and a terrible this, that, and the other thing. And they, they, they get up and they testify. 
in front of people. That is not what God is looking for. He's looking for someone who earnestly and honestly repents. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgression. Wash me throughly from my iniquity, which is a little bit different than thoroughly. Thoroughly cuts through the inwards. Cleanse me from my sin. I acknowledge my transgression. My sin is ever before me against thee, the only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. It is making Yahweh's law exalted. What does Paul say when he talks about? Do we negate the law when we establish the principle of grace? No, we establish it. We'll get to that God willing in our next class into the most holy subject matter of the cherubim. What happened to the Pharisees? Which, by the way, in the gospel records, every time, oh, man brought his brother before Christ, I bid him that he split the inheritance with him. Every time that a man brings someone else to Christ so that he rebukes him of sin, he himself is rebuked. And that's what the Pharisees did. They are really keen on exposing other men's sins. I don't think much of that, brothers and sisters. I, I, Glad luck that I'm not as other men, as they said. But the publican smites his own breast. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Which one of these two, he says, went justified? And you know what that term justified means? Which one of them was justified before God? The man who compared himself to other people that probably day to day didn't do the horrible things that the Pharisee was, or did the horrible things the Pharisee was saying. It's self-righteousness and Yahweh has no space for that. And he doesn't want brought out into a multitude. You go into a closet and you reconcile and make yourself evil, even with your God. Here it is again, that Nadab and Abihu offered strange fire before God. That is, they didn't take it from the proper place. And what happened in the days of Israel? This is brought up many times in the prophets. They were burning incense to the high places to other gods. They were worshiping the works of their own hands, offering incense to the queen of heaven. And the many times that that appears in the prophets, it's acknowledging somebody else as the ability to change, change your personal situation or acknowledging anything, anyone, any so-called deity other than God as the reason you prosper in anything that you do. It is the height of offense. It's where you, by your own words, go into the presence of Almighty God. And here, they were giving that credit to false gods, to anything other than Almighty God himself. Singleness of heart is the foundation of acceptable prayer. If a person's petitions are to be heard, his actions must be in accord with the spirit of them. God abominates all forms of double-mindedness. It is double-minded to pray, hallowed be thy name, while pursuing courses which bring reproach and dishonor upon it. That's tough. How often do we do that, brothers and sisters? Just trying to go about our daily business and not even thinking about the truth. It is inconsistent to pray for protection from besetting sins while running in the ways of temptation. How often do we do that? Or for faith while seeking the company of the unfaithful. It is useless praying for the extension 
I've got a sign up on my computer. Please move this window away from the shared protection. Sorry, brother. I don't know how. If I click something, this is not going to be good. While neglecting to do anything about it or pleading for peace, whilst cultivating the spread of dissension, he asks at James and receive not because you ask him this, because you're asking to spend it upon your own pleasures. What use are such prayers as that? Let us be careful in prayer, giving full meaning to the words we use. As we said, the spirit maketh intercession. Let them be scriptural words. What use is praying forgive our sins as we forgive those who sin against us? If we're not prepared to be merciful and forgiving, our prayer may well be the basis of our own future indictment. Morning and the evening prayer of the master. He rose up early to pray. Joshua rose up early to pray. Moses, so on and so forth. Then the evening says he continued all night in prayer. A solitary place. Go away into a closet. Christ, sit here while I went alone to go pray in a mountain. Peter went up to a housetop to prayer. It's something very, very personal. It's our interaction with God. It's where you can come before the Heavenly Father with all unrighteousness. And make confession to him and him alone through his mediator based on the word and go to your face before almighty God. And he is faithful to forgive it if we confess and forsake and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Christ, who in the days of his flesh, when he offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears, that's Christ. How much more us than the him that was able to save him from death. How much more so us? Prayer is cooperation with Almighty God. Just because we pray for victory and warfare, for the outcome of something, we will not see the men of the Bible not doing anything about it. Remember, the coals came from the altar of burnt offering. There has to be action connected with it, brothers and sisters. Prayer is to be with the spirit of contentment. Let your behavior, your lifestyle, which is the word conversation, be without covetousness, which is the Greek word means desirous of silver. How, much, how many of us don't want a little bit of that? Be content with such things as you have. Here's the worst thing about that quote. I say that as a fleshly man. <laughs> Here's the worst thing about the quote. For he said, it's the problem, the problem is where he's quoting it from. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee that we may boldly say the Lord is my helper. That quote is taken from Deuteronomy 31, when Joshua was encouraging the brethren to take the brethren into the land of inheritance. That's being content. You had manna, it was going to cease after the 40th year. You can look at your margin, that's where it's quoted from. We think we don't have anything and we need more Stability to be content, brothers and sisters. And of course, we've already referenced this in James chapter four via the quotation from uh, Brother H.P. Mansfield. We don't receive because we ask amiss things for our own desire because patience and faith are required. Brother Purse Mansfield, there is a certain amount of agony and effort in prayer. 
Paul wrote, I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake, for the love of the spirit that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me. The word in the Greek is agonize. Paul requested that the brethren agonize with him in prayer. It speaks of the intensity of feelings that one can place into prayer. Paul desired that brethren in their prayers on his behalf should fully enter into the hopes and desires and identify themselves completely with his aims. And that's from Brother H.P. Mansfield, again, making prayer powerful. So while we got the, the basic structure, brothers and sisters, of the fact that incense represents prayer, and we have at least four or five quotes that directly say that in the scriptures, that's not difficult to find. It's all these little details of the beaten small, then the cloud was to fill the mercy seat and what we're to be praying for. And it was to be offered at the same time that the lighting of the lamps, and it's got to be con conjoining with the word of God. It's all those details that make the altar of incense come to life. And then we have very quickly, just for these last couple of minutes, and you can look at these, they'll be in the uh, PDF notes that you have, the various postures um, used for prayer. Kneeling, sometimes it's bowing with your head to the ground. <clears throat> in the scripture, sometimes it's a lifting up of, of hands represent the incense rising. Sometimes it's prostrate to completely going on your face before, oh my God, sometimes it's standing. And the people rose up in prayer because it had to do with the exaltation of the word. And then sometimes it's sitting. The king sat before God, said, who am I, God, and what is my house? He's sitting down in humility in the position of the place where he was put um, at that particular time. And then, then here's a quick note um, of for what and whom do we pray? And you can get these if you want to mark them in your spare time. Obviously, this is a study in itself of the way that uh, prayer is given. Specific requests, mercy for pardon of sin, divine help, speedy deliverance, make something expedite, even though it's a trial, divine illumination, grace, time of affliction, imminent danger, praying for others, praying for co-laborers to help you, for communal forgiveness, us and all our fellowship and our people, praying for Israel, our children, saints, the public at large, that we can live a peaceable life for peace, that we can live a peaceable life. And this note that we'll conclude with, brothers and sisters, where um, it was pointed out, um, and this is in the expositor um, by Andrew Mansfield put together many years ago before I even came into the truth, that all these elements are brought together in Acts 2. And you may be aware of this, but I didn't realize this until I studied the expositor many years ago. They that gladly received his word were baptized, you can see how the principles of the tabernacle um, are brought together there. Same day they were added about 3,000 souls. Now, you know what happened in Exodus 32, in between the giving of the tabernacle and the setting up of it, Moses delayed in the mountain and about 3,000 souls, that's literally the term used, were slain by the Levites because they fell away to idolatry. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, the labor and fellowship of lampstand, and in breaking of bread, the table of showbread, and in prayers, the altar of incense. Isn't that phenomenal? And again, you can see, and that's why I like to provide sources, where, of course, that uh, I got all of these references. 
and where I got them. That, this is in the expositor by H.P. Mansfield. And I can't refer to the page number because I've long forgotten where it is. Um, so that's why we're praying for the will of God and we're praying to know the will of God. And this is basically our last quotation. And again, our brother Luke in his opening prayer prayed in this manner that we would be filled with all knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So we're also praying for understanding. That's one of the things we pray for when we study is knowing the will of God and praying for help in discerning um, the scriptures of truth. So the lining of lamps and uh, and the offering of incense. This final thing, and this is on page 253, at least in the old version. I, I, I don't know if it's got a different page number now. This is the Exodus Expositor because it says this in Psalm 78, when Yahweh brought the children of Israel through the sea, he brought them to the border of his sanctuary, even this mountain. So Brother Mansfield, based on that language of the sanctuary and Psalm 68 saying that Sinai references his holy place, you'll notice that he builds the physical, and we've talked about this in the introductory classes, that geography of land is even a parable in and of itself. So you have the tents of Israel as they stood in the plain representing the tabernacle of the congregation, and then Horeb, the mount, the holy place, and Sinai, the most holy. And that he says it's really, in geography, a spelling out of this, or a principled point of this uh, tabernacle before it was actually erected in the midst of the people. So I thought that was very interesting as well. So brothers and sisters, God willing, next class, we will go into the most holy, dealing with the ark and the mercy seat and the cherubim and what those represent. And again, brothers and sisters, will not be difficult, God willing, for us uh, to uh, unearth those, those very fundamental meanings. Mm -hmm.